السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respected listeners we gather once again for the study and commentary of the famous hadith of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha about the hijrah, the emigration of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to Medina. We've now reached the end of the hadith. And here, the point where we left off last week was when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had arrived on the outskirts of Medina. And he had been received by the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. And there was great joy, festivity and celebration. This is where we left off. I won't repeat myself from... Uh, I won't repeat myself... from last week so to continue فتلقوا رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم بظهر الحرة and they met the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم on the plane of حرة which was the lava plane فَعَدَلَ بِهِمْ ذَاتِ الْيَمِينِ So the Prophet ﷺ moved to the right with them. He took a detour to the right. حَتَّى نَزَلَ بِهِمْ فِي بَنِي عَمْرِ بْنِ عَوْفِ Until he settled, or shall we say dismounted, in بَنُوْ عَمْرِ Or he settled amongst the بَنُوْ عَمْرِ بْنِ عَوْفِ وَذَلِكَ يَوْمَ الْإِثْنَيْنِ مِنْ شَهْرِ رَبِيعِ الْأَوَّلِ And this was on Monday of the month of Rabi'u al-Awwal. So the Prophet ﷺ had arrived with his small group, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, Amir ibn Fahira, radiyallahu anhuma, and Abdullah ibn Uraiqit, the expert tracker and the guide. People had been coming out every day, waiting for them. Word had spread in the whole oasis of Yathrib. 
and Muslims, non-Muslims, young and old, men and women alike, were all waiting eagerly. Some of them not so eagerly, since some were bitterly opposed to the Messenger wasallam, even within the city and before his arrival. Eventually, when the Prophet ﷺ arrived, there was a great day of it was a great day of joy and celebration. And Anas bin Malik who was a young child at the time, he relates that there are two days, the likes of which I have never seen in my life. The first was the day of the arrival of Rasulullah ﷺ in Medina. And the second was the day he departed from this world. Those two days I have not seen the like of them. And it's difficult to describe. Muslims were overjoyed. And there was rejoicing, happiness. Even the Prophet ﷺ felt utterly relieved and happy even though he had fled from his own city, his birthplace, his hometown, leaving everything behind, and most importantly, leaving the holy city of Mecca behind. But his arrival, his reception, the honor and love shown to him by the Sahaba, عنهم, was so immense that it, lift, it lightened his burden and lifted his load off him. And this is why eventually the Prophet, well, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam loved the Ansar, and eventually they proved themselves at every stage. And time and time again, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam advised the people to love the Sahaba, uh, the Ansar Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. In fact, in a hadith later by Imam Bukhari and others. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Ayatul imani hubbul ansar wa ayatul nifaq bughdul ansar. The sign of faith and iman is the love of the ansar. And the sign of hypocrisy is the hatred and the dislike of the ansar. And when we say ansar, we mean the assistants, the helpers, the disciples of the Prophet ﷺ and his companions in from Al-Madinah Al-Munawwara, the indigenous population of Medina, as opposed to the Muhajirun, the emigrants. These people opened up their homes, their hearts and their doors and their wealth, and they devoted themselves to the Prophet ﷺ. So they were the Ansar. Allah has praised them in the Quran. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam praised them in the Ahadith. And maybe if we have time, I'll say a bit about that later on. But you can imagine the joy and the festivity and celebration of that day that Anas bin Malik radiallahu anhu, who was a native of Medina, who was a child, and who became very close to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says that, there are two days alike of which I have never seen. The day he arrived in the city of Medina and the day of his departure from this world. Now, when the Prophet wasallam arrived on the outskirts, as I mentioned last week, he arrived from the south and the area where the settlements began, just before that we have the plains 
So there the Prophet ﷺ was received by some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum. And then he shifted to the side, took a detour to the right, and eventually made his way to the settlement of Banu Amr ibn Awf. Now, in order to understand the this event and some of the later events, it's important to remember what I've mentioned on numerous occasions about the layout of the city of Medina. Unlike Mecca, unlike other cities, it wasn't a closed, compact city. In fact, in a way, it wasn't even referred to as a city in the traditional sense. Although it was called that, it was known as Yathrib. It was, it was actually an oasis spread over quite a large area. And in this oasis, you had settlements. And each of these settlements was, although it contained some other elements, predominantly, each settlement was of one particular clan. So a large clan would inhabit a certain area. And... The, in fact, in the traditional ahadith, in the hadith, when it comes to Medina, it's not normally mentioned that the people went or the people stayed at or the people were in this settlement or that settlement or that neighbourhood. You can't even call it a neighbourhood, rather a settlement. It's like a cluster of villages. The word dar, diyar is rarely used. The word settlement is not used. They would just simply say, amongst these people, amongst these people. And what that meant is their settlement. So here as well, he settled amongst the Banu Amr ibn Awf, who were a tribe of Aus, who lived in the southern part of the oasis. And sometimes the areas in which they lived had individual names. So the Prophet ﷺ, he settled amongst the Banu Amr ibn Awf. And each settlement, each clan, had its own settlement. And there weren't any formal boundaries. But each settlement didn't just consist of houses. Rather, these settlements had houses, small and large, orchards, fields... palm groves, and then you had some space, then another settlement. And that settlement had its large homes, small homes, palm groves, fields and orchards, and then another settlement. So in essence, you can regard each settlement as a small village. And Medina was a collection of, or a cluster of villages in the oasis. And each settlement or each village each area, which was quite large and which was rural, was dominated by one particular clan or members of a particular tribe. This is why even the Jewish tribes had their own settlements. The Banu Qaynuqa had their own settlement, the Banu Qurayza, the Banu Nadir. 
And Aus and Khazraj were the two major tribes of the Arabs, but Aus and Khazraj were themselves divided into many different clans. And each clan had their own settlement. So Banu Amr ibn Auf, their settlement was in the south of the city, in the area known as Quba. So the famous region of Quba. That was the settlement of Banu Amr ibn Auf. And in this day and age, we don't refer to these areas according to their clans because it's redundant. We know them obviously more better still, well, we know them better as individual areas. But at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the areas were actually better identified by the clans that lived there, lived, lived there and inhabited these areas because the whole region was called, was named after them. So the Prophet ﷺ settled, he moved to the right, and then eventually he settled amongst the Banu Amr ibn Awf. And what I mean settled is he dismounted, he unpacked, he began to rest, and he made his base there for a number of days. So he settled amongst the Banu Amr ibn Awf, and that was the area of Quba, as we know it today, approximately two miles to the south of the Masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa directly to the south, two miles. And his day of arrival was Monday in the month of Rabi'ul Awwal. There are differences of opinion as to what date it was. More than likely, it was the 8th or the 9th of Rabi'ul Awwal. And I say 8th or 9th, depending on the sighting of the moon. So some calculations give the 9th, some calculations give the 8th. So the 8th or the 9th of the month of Rabi'ul Awwal. That was when the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Quba. And he settled amongst the Banu Amr ibn Auf. And they were a tribe of Aus. Now what happened, the narrator says, فَقَامَ أَبُو بَكْرٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ لِلنَّاسِ So Abu Bakr رضي الله عنه, he stood up amongst the people. وَجَلَسَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ صَامِتًا and the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam remained seated silent. So those of the Ansar who came, of those who had not seen the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, they began greeting Abu Bakr radiallahu So many people had thronged around the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Hundreds of people. And they were milling around, moving, coming forth, moving. And it's mentioned in the narrations that even old ladies who were unable to go out of the house to a far distance, even they climbed up on the roofs, on the roofs of their homes. And they were asking each other and the neighbors, which one of them is he? Which one of them is he? Looking out for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, the people came. Some of them had seen the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Others hadn't. So those who hadn't seen the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when they arrived, all they saw was a group of men, and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam had sat down, and he was just calmly, humbly, 
seated silently. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was standing. So people thought he was a messenger of Allah. And they began greeting him. Not with the words, or oh, messenger of Allah, but just greeting him. And prior to this, let me also explain something else. On the way to Medina, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, when he was with the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, if they would meet people randomly, and they never feared them, and they were just passers-by, on a couple of occasions, people asked Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, who are you? So he would reply by saying, someone in need of something. Someone looking for something. Someone who wishes to fulfill, seeking to fulfill his need. Baghi haja. So then they would ask, and who's he? Referring to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu would say, he is showing me the way. Since he wanted to conceal their affair, he would refer to himself as a seeker of something to fulfill his need. Who is he? Someone who is showing me the way. Now one of the reasons why people would speak to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu first, is that even though he was two years, a few months younger than the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he looked older. The Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, despite being 53 on the occasion of the hijrah, he looked extremely young. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, despite being younger than him by two years, few months, he actually looked much older. So people would speak to him on the way, and he would say, I'm a seeker of a need to be fulfilled. And he is the one showing me the way. So here as well, Abu Bakr radiallahu was standing. He looked the more senior, both in terms of age, as well as the one standing. And the Prophet sallallahu had silently sat down. So people thought he was Rasulullah sallallahu They began greeting him. Not with the words, oh messenger of Allah, but just greeting him. Since it was hot, Abu Bakr radiallahu then moved and covered the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam with a cloth to give him shade. That's when people realize that he is a Messenger of Allah. So the Ansar who hadn't known the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, they they didn't greet him. Another reason for people greeting Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is some of them is that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu would travel to Sham, to trade. And Sham was a famous trading region for the Arabs of Mecca. So when he would pass by Medina, known as Yathrib at the time, in fact, Medina was on the trade route. So when people would travel from southern Yemen, or even from Mecca to Mukarramah, and they would travel up north to Sham, they would always pass by the city of Yathrib. And it was a halting place. People would take a slight detour, spend some time in Medina, on the way there, on the way back. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu would do the same, because even in adulthood he would trade and travel. 
regularly. So some people knew him. In any case, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was standing, some people greeted him, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was seated silently. حَتَّى أَصَابَتِ الشَّمْسُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ Until the sun fell upon the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. فَأَقْبَلَ أَبُو بَكْرٍ So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu came forward. حَتَّى ظَلَّلَ عَلَيْهِ بِرِدَائِهِ Until he shaded him with his cloak. فَعَرَفَ النَّاسُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ عِنْدَ ذَلِكَ so the people recognize the Messenger of Allah at that moment. فَلَبِثَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ فِي بَنِي عَمْرِ بْنِ عَوْفٍ بِذْعَ عَشْرَةَ لَيْلَةِ So the Prophet ﷺ remained in Banu Amr ibn Awf, the clan of Amr ibn Awf, بِذْعَ عَشْرَةَ لَيْلَةٍ for ten and a few nights. وَأُسِّسَ الْمَسْجِدُ الَّذِي أُسِّسَ عَلَى التَّقْوَى And that masjid, which was established upon taqwa, was established. وَصَلَّى فِيهِ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ And Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam prayed therein. ثُمَّ رَكِبَ رَاحِلَتَهُ Then he rode his camel. Now, so what happened here? The Prophet ﷺ arrived on the Monday. And he remained in Banu Amr ibn Awf, meaning the clan of Amr ibn Awf, for approximately 12 days. And how was that? He arrived on the Monday. So, for one whole week, that's seven days, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So that's four days. So more than ten, i.e. eleven, twelve. So the Prophet ﷺ arrived on the Monday, and he stayed till the following Friday. And in that time, Rasulullah ﷺ was just advising, guiding people. And something else also happened, which is that in that whole region of Yathrib, a number of people had embraced Islam. Some of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum had done hijrah a long time before, not just two months before, but a year before, like Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiallahu And they were teaching the new Muslims in Medina the Qur'an, and ibadah, and religion. So people would pray salah. And they would also pray salah in congregation, because it was only in Mecca they were unable to pray with jama'ah in congregation, openly. But in Medina, they were able to do that openly and freely. So there were many regions in the whole of Yathrib where people would gather, small areas, and they would pray salah. Quba was one of them, amongst Ibn Amr ibn Awf. So they were already praying salah there. But now the Prophet ﷺ instructed them to build a proper masjid. And so the Sahaba radiallahu anhum of Banu Amr ibn Awf, the Prophet 
instructed them, established the masjid, and they built the masjid. Most likely in the same area where they were already praying, but now they did it properly. This was the first masjid in Islam, built under the instruction of Rasulullah wasallam in his presence, by the Sahaba anhum, on a large scale, with a view to that masjid being a proper masjid. And this is why it's referred to as the first masjid, masjid of Quba. And the Prophet wasallam was present there. And when the narrator says, وَأُسِّسَ الْمَسْجِدُ الَّذِي أُسِّسَ عَلَى التَّقْوَى That that masjid which was established on taqwa was established. وَصَلَّى فِيهِ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ And then the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam prayed therein. Is that the masjid was established and for as long as the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam remained in that area, they, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam prayed salah there, he led the Muslims in prayer and he inaugurated the masjid and the congregational worship in that masjid. And the narrator says, that masjid which was established on taqwa was established. What he is referring to is the verse of the Holy Qur'an. In Surah At-Tawbah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَا تَقُمْ فِيهِ أَبَدًا Do not stand therein ever. And I'll explain what that refers to. Then Allah says, لَمَسْجِدٌ أُسِّسَ عَلَى التَّقْوَى مِنْ أَوَّلِ يَوْمٍ أَحَقُّ أَنْ تَقُومَ فِيهِ فِيهِ رِجَالٌ يُحِبُّونَ أَنْ يَتَطَهَّرُوا وَاللَّهُ يُحِبُّ الْمُطَّهِرِينَ أَفَمَنْ أَسَّسَ بُنْيَانَهُ عَلَى تَقْوَى مِنَ اللَّهِ وَرِضْوَانَ خَيْرٌ أَمَّنْ أَسَّسَ بُنْيَانَهُ عَلَى شَفَا جُرُفٍ هَارٍ which has been established on taqwa from the very first day, that is more deserving that you stand therein. There are in that masjid men who love to thoroughly purify themselves. And Allah loves those who thoroughly purify themselves. What is one who establishes his foundation on taqwa better, or one who establishes his foundation on the precipice, on the corner of a precipice or a cliff which is dropping, and then it does drop with him, into the fire of Jahannam. And Allah does not guide the sinful ones. That's translation of those verses of Surah Tawbah. And the meaning of who's better, someone who establishes his foundation on taqwa, or someone who establishes his foundation ala shafa jurufin har. Jurufin har means a cliff edge. A falling cliff edge. And shafa means the edge. So someone who establishes his foundation on a, colla- on a falling cliff edge, which then does collapse, 
but it collapses with him into the fire of Jahannam. Now, what does the, all of that refer to? Let me explain the... So that is Masjid al-Taqwa, and that is Masjid al-Quba. The Masjid of Quba is the Masjid of Taqwa. The Prophet wasallam arrived there, that was his arrival place. He stayed in Quba, in the settlement of Quba, belonging to Banu Am, the clan of Amr ibn Awf, a clan of the Aus tribe. He stayed there for more than 10 days, from Monday till the next Friday. And during that period, he advised them, he guided them, people embraced Islam at his hands, those who hadn't yet embraced, and he established this masjid and led salah therein. This was the first masjid. And it was called, Allah named it, the masjid of taqwa. And the backdrop to the revelation of those verses of Surah Al-Tawbah is that in the ninth year of Hijrah, Before the Prophet ﷺ left for Tabuk to march north, uh, some of whose details I've covered in the commentary of the hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik radiallahu a number of people had built a masjid. Now there was an individual called Amir al-Rahib. Now this individual... He he was an Arab, but he had opposed the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he was forever plotting and scheming in the city of Medina. And after the Battle of Badr, he was so disgusted he left. Well, he went and he instigated the people of Mecca against the Muslims to retaliate and to avenge themselves for the Battle of Badr. And he was quite instrumental in encouraging them, amongst many others. And he plotted and schemed. After the Battle of Uhud, he even left Arabia, and he went up north to Sham. And his sole mission was to solicit help against the Muslims of Medina. And eventually he even reached the court of the Roman Byzantine Roman ruler in Constantinople. And he sought his assistance against Medina. And he actually won that backing. So he was told, yes, you can plot and scheme. We will assist you and hopefully we will overrun Medina. So you can make preparations. As part of those preparations, he had a faction of men in the city of Medina. He instructed them to build a masjid in disguise. So ostensibly it was a masjid. But the purpose wasn't to have it as a masjid. Rather, it was ultimately to serve as a depot for weapons, as a headquarters for their subversive activity in the city of Medina, and eventually to serve as a garrison. And along with these long-term goals, the intention was also to create division amongst the Muslims. How? So they built the masjid. And where did they build it? it? 
they built it in the settlement of Banu Amr ibn Awf, which already had a masjid, the masjid of Quba. So they built it very close by. So what was the reason for building another masjid close by when they already had the first and the famous masjid of Quba? So they built it. And the idea was to divide the Muslims. Then they came to the Prophet ﷺ. And they said to him, O Messenger of Allah, we have built a masjid. And in order to justify their reason for building a masjid so close to Masjid al-Quba, they said, O Messenger of Allah, we've built it with the intention that it would serve those people who are weak, unable to travel far, and for cold nights, for rainy nights, so for bad weather, rainy nights, cold nights, and for the weak and needy, i.e. I, those who can't travel that far to go to Masjid al-Quba, we built it nearby so that the locals can come to this masjid. So the Prophet so they said, O Messenger of Allah, we wish you to come, and we wish you to pray salah therein, and consecrate the masjid for us. And the purpose was that that would be a blessing and a confirmation by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa They were hypocrites. But they felt that if we could gain his ratification, his stamp of authority and his approval, then this will work wonders for us. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said to them, I'm on the verge of departing. So not now, but when I return. So the Prophet ﷺ left for Tabuk. Remember, I've mentioned on numerous occasions, he didn't intend to go to Tabuk. We say that retrospectively. Otherwise, his intention was just to march up north. Tabuk was the place where he eventually halted and camped for a number of days and then returned. That's why the whole campaign is known as a campaign of Tabuk. But he had no such intention at the beginning of departing specifically for Tabuk or halting there. But when he left, on, on his return journey, he was aware that he had to go to this masjid to pray Salah therein to inaugurate it. When he was close to Medina, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses of Surah At-Tawbah to him. And Allah informed him. And the verses are, وَالَّذِينَ اتَّخَذُوا مَسْجِدًا ضِرَارًا وَكُفْرًا وَتَفْرِيقًا بَيْنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَإِرْصَادًا لِمَنْ حَارَبَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولَهُ مِنْ قَبْلَ وَلَيَحْلِفُنَّ إِنْ أَرَدْنَا إِلَّا الْحُسْنَى وَاللَّهُ يَشْهَدُ إِنَّهُمْ لَكَاذِبُونَ لَا تَقْمْ فِيهِ أَبَدًا Those who have built a masjid, dirara, with the intention of harming, with the intention of harm, وَكُفْرًا and in disbelief, وَتَفْرِيقًا بَيْنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ and with a view to dividing the Muslims, the believers, وَإِرْصَادًا لِمَنْ حَارَبَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولَهُ and as a garrison for those who have fought against Allah and His Messenger. And they will swear and take oaths, in أَرَدْنَا إِلَّا الْحُسْنَى that we only sought to do good. And Allah testifies that they are liars. Do not ever stand therein, in that masjid. 
Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَمَسْجِدٌ أُسِّسَ عَلَى التَّقْوَى مِنْ أَوَّلِ يَوْمٍ أَحَقُّ أَنْ تَقُومَ فِيهِ Verily, a masjid which has been established on taqwa from the very first day is more deserving that you stand therein. So this is the reason for the contrast. So masjid al-taqwa of Quba, the masjid of Quba has been referred to as a masjid established on taqwa. But these verses calling them, calling this masjid, the masjid of taqwa, was revealed nine years later. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, that masjid of taqwa is far more deserving that you stand therein. And Allah contrasts it to the masjid of division and disbelief and harm, masjid al-dirar, which was close by. This is why Allah praises it. Allah further says, فِيهِ رِجَالٌ يُحِبُّونَ أَن يَتَطَهَّرُوا وَاللَّهُ يُحِبُّ الْمُطَّهِرِينَ Therein meaning in Quba are men who love to purify themselves thoroughly. And Allah loves those who thoroughly purify themselves. So, we learn from many narrations that the, mean, this, the meaning of this purification, thorough purification, is that the Arabs living in a very arid, dry and hot climate, and considering the food they ate, there was very little. So in many ways they were quite healthy. And when they would relieve themselves, it wouldn't be regularly. It would be infrequently. And secondly, it was very simple for them. And living in that climate, they would be able to cleanse themselves adequately just by using natural things such as rocks and pebbles or clusters of sand, etc., hard sand. They wouldn't use water. Some would, but if it was available. But considering the climate, they would only have, especially on journeys, etc., they would normally rely just on... Uh, well, they would rely on rocks and other pebbles, etc. And when it came to water, they would just have, have just about have enough water to drink, which they carried with them. So considering the climate and their lifestyle, that was adequate. But the people of Quba, all of them, the whole settlement of Quba, had a unique feature, which is that contrary to this Arab custom and traditional Arab lifestyle, and which they considered adequate anyway, they would cleanse themselves first by means other than water, and then they would cleanse themselves thoroughly with water afterwards too. So it was thorough purification. And Allah says, And Allah loves those who thoroughly purify themselves. But there are a number of lessons here in that those who thoroughly purify themselves. One, it speaks about personal hygiene. Secondly, the people of Quba weren't just particular about personal hygiene and the thorough use of water in cleansing themselves. But most importantly, 
before Allah speaks about their tatahur and their thorough purification, it doesn't mean that the verse only refers to that. This is why I'm going to explain this. The verse actually refers to their thorough purification both inwardly and outwardly. Inner purity and external purity. That's why before Allah speaks of their thorough purification, Allah speaks about their taqwa. And that's the message we get. Personal hygiene is extremely important. But the best way of describing it is that famous leader of the Muslims and the beloved companion of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa aminu hadhihi al-ummah and the trustee of this ummah Abu Ubaidat ibn al-Jarrah radiyallahu anhu who said people are concerned and are worried about blots or about dirt on their white clothes yet they are not concerned about the blemishes on their souls so we are very quick to ensure that there is not a speck of dust or a blot or a smudge on our clothes and we we are all concerned about appearances about pretenses as long as we appear to be good that's fine but what islam teaches us is cleanliness on the outside cleanliness on the inside purity on the outside taqwa in the inside that our exterior should be a reflection of our interior and just as much as we dislike and fear appearing in public with blots on our clothes with specks of dust and dirt and smudges we should be equally worried about the blemishes on our character and the blots on our soul before our creator Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala this is why one alim was asked what's taqwa and his reply was taqwa is that you empty the contents you empty the thoughts of your mind and the emotions of your heart onto a platter a tray and then you walk about in full view of the public in the marketplace with this tray and you are not the least embarrassed that's taqwa so the sahaba radiyallahu anhum ibn amr ibn auf they ensured that their exterior was pure they thoroughly cleansed themselves but their interior reflected taqwa so much so that Allah testifies on the one hand he testifies about the others that Allah, even though they swear that we intend only to do good the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam when he had returned to medina he sent the sahaba radiyallahu anhum and they destroyed and razed that masjid to the ground and i say masjid even though as we know it was a headquarters a garrison a center of subversion because allah himself calls it a masjid 
So the fact that a masjid is called a masjid, it doesn't mean anything. Allah called Masjid al-Dirar a masjid. Allah called it a masjid. But at the same time Allah said, their intention is division, is strife, discord, corruption, and harm. And they were insincere. Despite their oaths, they will surely swear that we only intend to do good. Allah testifies that they are lies. And in contrast, Allah actually testifies about the people of Quba, the Banu Amr ibn Awf and the others, the people who frequented and inhabited that masjid, that they are people of taqwa and purity, and that the very foundation of the masjid is built on purity and taqwa. So this is the masjid of taqwa. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, even before the revelation of this verse, the verse says, do not stand therein. Rather, a masjid which has been established in taqwa is more deserving that you stand therein. This verse was revealed much later, but the Prophet ﷺ, even before he had a noble habit, because he established this masjid, it was the first masjid. The Banu Amr ibn Awf were the first people who hosted him and who received him. He would travel every week, especially on a Saturday. He would travel on a Saturday from his masjid to Masjid al-Quba. Sometimes walking, he would walk two miles and walk two miles back. And he would go there on the Saturday in the morning and he would pray salah there. And he would spend a few hours there just praying salah and worshipping in the masjid. And the masjid, the masjid al-Quba is one of those masajid to which you actually travel and to which you, in which you pray with the intention of a specific reward. And the Prophet ﷺ has said in different ahadith, we learn that one salah in the masjid is equivalent to one umrah. So the one salah in the masjid of Quba is equivalent to an umrah. And the Prophet ﷺ would go there regularly, riding and walking. So that is masjid of Quba. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that was his noble custom anyway. But then Allah says, such a masjid is more deserving that you stand therein. Now, there are some ahadith which suggest that the masjid of taqwa is the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So which one is it? Well, there's no contradiction at all. None whatsoever. If the masjid of Quba is the masjid of taqwa, and its foundation is on taqwa. And its people are people of thorough purity, ritual purity. Then, even more so, and it was established by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, even more so, that the masjid which he then established as his own masjid, in which he would pray all the time and lead, and in which were the leading Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, and more than them, in which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa himself was, doesn't that deserve a greater title to be called Masjid al-Taqwa? Of course it does. So if the Masjid of Quba can be Masjid al-Taqwa, for these reasons and for the same reasons, Masjid al-Rasul, Masjid al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa is also Masjid al-Taqwa. So they are both correct. However, the reference to the masjid of taqwa in the verses, and to the people of being, being of thorough purity, 
and the masjid of taqwa being in contrast to the masjid of dirar, of harm, that masjid is the one of Quba. And speaking of external purity, inner hygiene is important, external hygiene is important. This is why one has to be very careful when it comes to ritual purification, ghusl, wudu. And we may not understand this, but consider the following. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, and Imam Nasa'i, both, and others, they relate that the Prophet once led Fajr Salah in his own masjid. And he recited Surah Al-Rum. And in his recitation of Surah Al-Rum, he made a mistake. After Salah, Prophet ﷺ turned round and said, I experience difficulty in Salah. This is because some of you do not complete and make good your wudu. So ensure that when you come to the masjid, you make good and complete your wudu. Now, subhanAllah, the lesson, imagine such a holy time, Fajr Salah, a beautiful time as I explained in the Tafsir of Surah Al-Fajr, the beginning, just two weeks ago. Fajr Salah time, beautiful atmosphere, a beautiful time, a blessed time. The Masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and the noble messenger himself leading Salah. He is the one who receives the revelation. And yet because some people were impure, and I don't mean that in the, in the evil sense, in the sense that they hadn't completed their wudu properly. So their ritual purity was wanting. It was deficient. Just because of that, despite the beautiful time, the blessed time, the blessed location, and the fact that even the Messenger ﷺ was leading salah, their lack of thorough purity had an adverse effect even on the noble Messenger ﷺ, and it affected his dilawah of the Qur'an. That's someone else's purity. So imagine how damaging our own lack of purity can be on our character, on our deeds, on our souls. They both go hand in hand. External hygiene, inner hygiene. Inner purity, outer purity. <laughs> we may not understand, but subhanAllah, it's mentioned in the hadith, someone's lack of wudu, i.e. thorough wudu, we can't imagine that uh, someone would come not doing wudu properly, intentionally, and they would actually come to pray Fajr Salah in the masjid with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's just that because of carelessness, they were unable to complete their wudu. This is why once Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was traveling, and people, uh, they were traveling as one large group, but they were broken up in smaller groups. So some of the sahaba radiyallahu anhum reached a location early, and they say, وَقَدْ أَرْحَقَتْنَا الصَّلَاةِ The salah had pushed them, i.e. they were rushing in order to pray salah before the time ended. And in their rushing, they were quickly doing wudu. 
So just then the Prophet ﷺ arrived, and from a distance he could see that their heels weren't washed thoroughly. Because when a person washes, often you, you can see and wash the outer, upper part of the foot. But sometimes the heels and the area around the ankles is left, or it's not thoroughly washed. So the Prophet ﷺ actually shouted at the top of his voice, That woe be unto the heels of the fire. Woe be unto the heels of the fire. I.e. complete your wudu. So the Prophet ﷺ warned the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, Sahadith Bukhari, warned the Sahaba radiallahu anhum to ensure that even their heels were thoroughly washed. And the Prophet ﷺ, he, Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi, includes this hadith in the section, raising one's voice. And it's a brilliant derivation. And what he shows is that even the Messenger ﷺ, he wouldn't shout, he wouldn't raise his voice. It's very calm. But on this occasion, he raised his voice from a distance in order to warn the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. So this is a lesson for us to ensure that we complete our external ritual purity. But that in itself is not sufficient. That should reflect inner taqwa and inner purity too. So anyway, that is Masjid al-Taqwa, that is Masjid al-Quba. وَصَلَّى فِيهِ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ اللَّهِ Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam prayed salah therein. ثُمَّ رَكِبَ رَاحِلَتَهِ Then he climbed onto his camel and moved on. When did he do this? It's not mentioned here now. That was on the day of Jum'ah. And it's mentioned in other narrations. It was Jum'ah. And when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam left the area of Quba, People were telling him, stay here, O Messenger of Allah, stay here. So he said, no, I wish to settle amongst the maternal family of Abdul Muttalib, i.e. my grandparents, the Banu Najjar. So I wish to settle amongst them. I will honor them in this way. I strengthen his ties with them and honor them. I'll explain in a moment what that means. So the Prophet ﷺ left the clan of Banu Amr ibn Auf and moved on. On the way, he stopped at an area where the Banu Salim lived. And there the Prophet ﷺ performed Jumu'ah Salah. So he arrived there at Jumu'ah time, and that's where he performed the first Jumu'ah Salah of Islam. Then the Prophet ﷺ moved on, and he made his way to Banu Najjar. So as I said earlier, be mindful of my explanation, that Medina was a collection of settlements, one of the settlements two miles up north. See, this is a question. Why did the Prophet ﷺ establish his masjid where it is today? Is it because it was a center of the oasis? And we all know the famous story about his camel being left to roam and go where it wanted. 
But he was in Quba. And the masjid is two miles away. So did the proper, so did the camel travel that far? No. In general, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam headed for that region where the masjid is today because it was a settlement of Banu Najjar. That's why he went there. So out of the whole oasis, he specifically and intentionally headed for the settlement of Banu Najjar. Why? Because he said they are my maternal grandparents. The maternal family of Abdul Muttalib. Now how is that? The Prophet ﷺ's grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, his father was Hashim. Hashim was a famous trader. Hashim was one of the sons of Abdul Manaf. So Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib ibn Hashim ibn Abdul Manaf. So the Prophet ﷺ's father, Abdullah, Abdullah's father, Abdul Muttalib, Abdul Muttalib's father was Hashim, the son of Abdul Manaf. Hashim was... These were the leaders of the Quraysh. And Hashim was a famous leader, one of the sons of Abdul Manaf. He was a leader amongst the men, but he was very young when he actually died. He died only at the age of 25. He was 25 years old, he died. Now he was a famous leader, he was a trader, Hashim. And he would travel from Mecca to Sham. And if you may recall my tafsir of Surah Al-Ilaf Quraysh, I explained then that the sons of Abdul Manaf, Muttalib, Hashim, Nawfal, Abdul Shams, these brothers, who all eventually became rivals, well, not, not in their lifetime, but their descendants became rivals, because of nature. So, these were the leading clans, because Banu Umayyah, ultimately, they're from Banu Abd Shams. These are all the children of Abdul Manaf, any case. So, Abdul Manaf, one of his sons was Hashim. Hashim was a trader, he would travel from Mecca to Sham. And all of his other sons, Muttalib, Nawfal, Abdul Shams, they had all established trading routes with and treaties with various people. So even with Abyssinia, with Yemen, and with the Iranians in Iraq. And Hashim, his region of trade and his leadership and his treaties of trading were with the people of Sham. So Hashim would travel regularly from Mecca to Sham. And on the way, as usual, he would stop in Medina. And there, he would stop by someone who was known to his family, who was known to his father, Abdul Manaf, and who had also become a close friend of his. So he would stay there. And his guest, who was, named, who was known as Amr, His guest had a daughter who was a widow. Her name was Salma. So it's an interesting story thus far related. So his name was Salma. And you'd also learn why Abdul Muttalib came to be known as Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib means a slave of Muttalib. 
So, and he was a grandfather of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So his father, Hashim, he would tra- travel to up north, trade, pass by Medina, spend some time there, move on on the return journey, stay in Medina by his friend, who was known as Amr. Amr had a daughter who was a widow, and her name was Salma. So he would see her, he would learn about her. So eventually, Hashim proposed to Amr for Salma's hand in marriage, who was a widow. So Amr agreed, and the marriage ceremony took place, and the bride was sent with Hashim. Salma bint Amr was sent to Mecca with Hashim. But the father, Amr, made a condition that you can marry her, and you can take her, but only on one condition, which is that whenever she gives birth, she only gives birth in Yathrib here, not in Mecca. You have to bring her back to my family at the time of birth, childbirth. So Hashim agreed. So when she became pregnant, on one occasion when she became pregnant, he brought her to Yathrib, to the family, left her there, spent some time with her, left her there, and went north to trade. One of the famous trading areas was Gaza. Gaza was a port and a trading coastal trading area even then and inshallah in a few weeks time hopefully maybe in january february when i will do the famous hadith of heraclius from sahih al-bukhari we learn then that the trading party of abu sufyan was in Gaza when they were summoned by heraclius and brought to jerusalem so hashim was in Gaza trading when he suddenly died there so he was buried, he died and he was buried in Gaza. This is why the Arabs have always referred to as to Gaza as Gaza to Hashim. They call it Gaza to Hashim. So throughout the Arabian Peninsula, from that time onwards, they would refer to Gaza as Gaza to Hashim, the Gaza of Hashim. Because the Prophet his great-grandfather was buried there. So when he was buried there, his wife, Salma, who was in Medina at her parents' home, and the, she was from the clan of Banu Najjar. She was from the clan of Banu Najjar. So she gave birth to, some, to a boy called Shayba, Shaybatul Hamd. A boy was given birth. His name was Shaybatul Hamd. That was his name, Shaybatul Hamd. And the reason for giving his name as Shayba is that even in childhood, he had white hair. Not fully, but some. So he was given the name Shayba, Shaybatul Hamd. The young lad grew up. He was about eight, nine years old or so. And in many ways he resembled his father. A young lad of leadership. Of even features. He looked and behaved just like his father, who was a leader of the Quraysh. So Hashim's brother, Muttalib, I mentioned earlier that his brothers were Abdul Shams, Nawfal, Muttalib. So Muttalib, he learned, he would obviously receive reports about his nephew. So when he would constantly hear things about his nephew, how he was growing up, how he looked like his father, Hashim, so Muttalib suddenly decided that, you know, I have to go and bring him back. So he went. Now, obviously, the Banu Najjar, 
They weren't going to allow Muttalib to just take the son. So he did it secretly. But some of the women in the jar assisted him. And when he arrived, he went looking for his nephew. And he found him playing with some children doing archery. So he recognized him immediately. So he said, who are you? So he said, I am Shaybatul Hamd. I am the son of the leader of the plain of Makkah. So he spoke very confidently. And he knew it was his nephew by his features, his leadership, his confidence, character. So he said, do you know who I am? He said, no. He said, I am your uncle Muttalib. And then he began speaking to him about Makkah and his father's city. And he convinced him to go with him. So some of the Banu Najjar who were there, they said, you know, we know who you are. You are Muttalib, you are Hashim's brother, you're his uncle. But we can understand you taking him, but the others won't understand. So if you wish, go with him now. Because if the others plead with us, we will have to prevent you. So if you want, leave with him now. And uh, Shaybatul Hamd, the young lad, agreed. His name was Shaybatul Hamd. So they went together. He, he took him and he brought him to Makkah. And he still didn't want to reveal to everyone that he had brought his nephew. Because in a way he had brought him without the family's consent. So on the way, when they arrived in Makkah, people say, oh, Muttalib's return, Muttalib's return. They say, who's that young lad with Muttalib? So people would ask him, who's that young lad with you? So his name was Shaybatul Hamd. He says, oh, this is a slave which I've purchased. A slave which I've purchased. So he told everyone, this is a slave that I've purchased. And then eventually people found out that it's not a slave, it's, this is the son of his brother Hashim. So his name was Shaybatul Hamd, but because Muttalib referred to him as a slave, forever after that he was called Abdul Muttalib, the slave of Muttalib. So Abdul Muttalib's mother was from Medina, Yathrib, from the clan of Najjar. And later, when Abdul Muttalib grew up, he would regularly travel. He became the undisputed leader of the Quraysh. And he would regularly travel to Medina. And there he would go and spend time amongst his maternal family. <coughs> and the Prophet ﷺ was well aware of that. In fact, amongst all the grandchildren, Abdul Muttalib being the undisputed leader of Mecca during his time, he, he only lived till when the Prophet ﷺ was the eight years of age. But he would keep his grandson with him all the time. Because he was the son of his most beloved son, Abdullah. And being a man of leadership, when he was young, he said, I am the son of the leader of the plain of Mecca. And he was only eight, nine then. So you can imagine him in his old age. He was the undisputed leader of Mecca. Famous, powerful, influential, noble. And this was a tradition of the Quraysh. He had his sons in front of him. And he would sit, Abdul Muttalib would sit. He had a special couch and bedding set out for him with a covering canopy in the shade of the Kaaba, in the Hatim. And he would sit there reclining against the Kaaba on his couch. And his sons, all his sons would be seated in front of him. And the Prophet ﷺ would come, and they were very respectful, his sons. And they say, we would fear 
None of us would dare sit on the couch with our father. They had respect for their elders. It was a tradition. This is a tradition of Islam. Even the Quraysh, even the non-pagan Arabs had it. They respected and revered their elders. So they said, none of, the, none of us had the courage to sit with our father. But our nephew, Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, would come running and he would climb onto the couch. And he would sit next to our father in the shade of the Kaaba. And some people would tell him that how is he sitting with Abdul Muttalib, the leader of the Quraysh? And Abdul Muttalib would reply by saying, leave my son alone. For one day, his status will be great. So he really loved him. And the Prophet ﷺ, he honored his grandfather in the same way. So when he arrived in Medina, he said, take me to Banu Najjar. I wish to settle amongst the Banu Najjar, my maternal grandparents, the the maternal family of my grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. This is why he went to the masjid. This is why the masjid is where it is today. Because it was a settlement of Banu Najjar. So when he went there, Prophet ﷺ, when he arrived in that area, the Sahaba thronged around him, all of the Banu Najjar came with their swords ready, i.e. to protect him, to give him a guard, guard of honor as well. Prophet ﷺ, everyone was grabbing his reins of the camel, and saying, Ya Rasulullah, descend amongst us. Ya Rasulullah, stay with us. Ya Rasulullah, come here. So the Prophet ﷺ said, leave the camel be, and then he himself loosened its reins. By now he was in Banu Najjar. So he had made his way to Banu Najjar. Only then did he loosen the reins of the camel. And he said, let the camel go wherever it wishes, for it is instructed by Allah. Then the camel went. And he even, uh, the camel went. And it came to a halt where the doors of the masjid were at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, according to one narration, where the mimbar is. So where the mimbar of the masjid of Rasulullah ﷺ is, that's eventually where the camel went and halted. And it sat down. Then it rose up again, moved forward, and then retreated, came back, sat down and settled. So the Prophet ﷺ said, this is my stop. And he came off. Now the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were very eager to grab the reins. And Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu he was present and he grabbed the reins of the camel once he had settled. And then he said to the Messenger of Allah, O Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa the Prophet sallallahu said, which of our homes is the closest? He actually said, which of, which of the homes of our people is the closest? And again, our people meaning the Banu Najjar. That's why in the hadith he said, خَيْرُ دُورِ الْأَنصَارِ بَنُ Najjar." The best of the homes and the settlements of the Ansar is Banu Najjar. So that was his family. So the Prophet wasallam said, which of the homes of our people is the closest? So Abu Yub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu said, my no messenger of Allah... So the Prophet ﷺ said, prepare uh, some bedding for me to lay down. 
to lie down. So Abu Yubil Ansari radiallahu anh grabbed the luggage and the saddle of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he ran with it. Then Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, As'ad ibn Zurara, he grabbed the reins. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, a man must go with his saddle. So he followed Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu anhu to his house. And there Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu anhu, he set up the, a home for Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam, and Allahu Akbar. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu anhu says that when he came into my house, I had two floors. And remember, we don't mean a two-story large mansion, but... They, if any of if any of you have seen rural homes where they have uh, a small ladder, a very small ladder, and an upper area, which aren't even we can't even be called a second floor, but an upper area on some wood and posts. So the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he said, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, initially was downstairs. And Abu Yubil Ansari radiallahu anh, he moved in with his wife upstairs. Then he came to the Messenger of Allah, and he said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, I cannot be above you. I cannot be above you. How can I be above you, O oh, Messenger of Allah? So I request that I stay at the lower level, and you go upstairs. So the Prophet wasallam said, there's no need, this is easier for you and for your family and easier for me. So Abu Yubil Ansari radiallahu anhu said, O Messenger of Allah, never will I allow myself to be over and above the Messenger of Allah. Even symbolically. So the Prophet wasallam was then moved upstairs. And Abu Yubil Ansari and his family were downstairs. Abu Yubil Ansari radiallahu anhu says, I would cook food for the Messenger wasallam, and I would send it up to him with... He would take it himself, sometimes he would send it. And if he would send it with someone, he says, when the Prophet ﷺ would finish eating, and he'd return the utensils to us, maybe with some of the food left over, we would ask from those who had taken the food, that from where did the Messenger ﷺ actually eat? And then we would also look and search in the utensils for the traces of the Prophet wasallam's hands and fingers. And then I and my wife, Umm Ayyub, we would intentionally eat only from where the Messenger wasallam ate in the hope of receiving his barakah and blessing. Subhanallah. That's how the Sahaba radiyallahu anhu were. So the Prophet ﷺ stayed at Abu Ayyub al-Ansari house for some time until the masjid was built and until some of the chambers were built for his family. His family hadn't arrived, but he sent, after his arrival in Medina, he sent his, his adopted son at the time, Zayd ibn Haritha uh, along with uh, someone else, to Medina to collect Saudah to collect uh, Umm Kulthum and Fatima radiallahu anhuma and other members of the family. Abu Bakr radiallahu an sent instructions for Abdullah, his son, along with others to bring his family, including Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha, and 
in the meantime, homes were prepared for all of them, and the masjid was being built too. So that was the arrival of the Messenger wasallam in what we called Medina, Medina. So in the masjid, in the settlement of Banu Najjar. So the hadith continues, we've nearly reached the end, so bear with me. فَصَارَ يَمْشِي مَعَهُمْ So people began walking with him. حَتَّى بَرَكَتْ عِنْدَ مَسْجِدِ الرَّسُولِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمِ الْمَدِينَةِ Until it's settled, i.e. the camel sat down by the masjid of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam al-Madina. وَهُوَ يُصَلِّي فِيهِ يَوْمَئِذٍ رِجَالٌ مِّنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ And a group of Muslims, a, a, number, a, a number of men amongst Muslims, would pray salah therein. I, where the masjid is today, a number of Muslims would pray salah in that area. وَكَانَ مِرْبَدًا لِلْتَمْرَ And it was a pen. لِلْتَمْرِ For dates. It was a pen and a threshing and drying area for dates. I'll explain. لِسُهَيْلٍ مُسَهْلٍ For Suhail and Sahl. غُلَامَيْنِ يَتِيمَيْنِ Two orphan lads. في حجر أسعد بن زرارة in the care of أسعد بن زرارة رضي الله عنه فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم حين بركت به راحلته so Allah's messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم said to him said when his camel sat down with him هذا إن شاء الله المنزل this إن شاء الله is the home is the place or is the place of descent ثم دعا رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الغلامين. Then Allah's Messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم called the two young lads فساومهما بالمربد and he bargained with them for the pen. I'll explain all of this in a moment. ليتخذه مسجدا so that he may build it as a masjid. فقال لا. They both said no. بَلْ نَهَبُهُ لَكَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ Rather, we will gift it to you, O Messenger of Allah. فَأَبَى رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ أَنْ يَقْبَلُهُ مِنْهُمَا هِبَةً So the Messenger of Allah صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ refused to accept it as a gift from them. حَتَّى بْدَاعَهُ مِنْهُمَا Until he purchased it from both of them. ثُمَّ بَنَاهُ Then he built it as a masjid. Now, what we've learned, what these words say is that the Prophet and eventually his camel came and halted where the masjid is today. And then the narrator says that the masjid at that time was an area in which, <coughs> before the arrival of the Prophet wasallam, some Muslims had already been praying. As I said earlier on, throughout Medina, Muslims would gather in different places and pray, because they were allowed to pray in jama'ah, in congregation. And this was even before the arrival of the Messenger ﷺ and before his hijrah. So this was another place where they would gather and pray. But they hadn't yet built it as a masjid. It was just an open area. But it was an open area which was quite large. And in this large open area there were a number of things. One, part of it was used as mirbad. A mirbad is a pen for holding or coraling a coral for coralling animals. And it was also used for threshing and drying dates. That was part of it. 
Another part actually had some graves in. And another part had trees in. And there were parts where there were ruins. So the Prophet ﷺ inquired, who does this land belong to? So he said, he was told that it belongs to two young lads who were orphans. So the Prophet ﷺ didn't speak to them first, subhanAllah. Look at his method of dealing. He did not want to deal with the orphans first. He actually summoned the leaders of Banu Najjar. And he said to them, O Banu Najjar, make a deal with me, i.e. reach an agreement with me about this area of yours. So they said, never, O Messenger of Allah, we will not reach an agreement with you. We will only reach an agreement with Allah. I.e., whatever you want, we give to you for free. So the Prophet ﷺ declined. Then he said, who does it belong to? So the question here is that why did he inquire of the leaders? Because this was their whole system. The clan elders were responsible in many ways. So they wouldn't take it unlawfully, but if you spoke to the leaders, they would deal with it amongst themselves. So when they refused to accept any payments for it, that's when the Prophet ﷺ inquired, who does it actually belong to specifically? Then he was told that it belongs to two young orphans. They were in the care of As'ad ibn Zurara, the same Sahabi who grabbed the reins after Abu Yub al-Ansari. So the Prophet ﷺ called them, that's what's mentioned here. And he said, I wish to purchase this land off you. So subhanAllah, they were young children and orphans, yet look at their understanding. They said to the Messenger of Allah, why do you want it, O Prophet of Allah? They wanted to know why he wanted it. They said, why do you want it? So the Prophet ﷺ had to speak the truth to them, he couldn't conceal his motives. So he informed them that I wish to build it as a masjid. So they said, we will give it to you as a gift, O Messenger of Allah. But the Prophet ﷺ refused to accept it as a gift from them. And he insisted on paying. So the Prophet ﷺ called Abu Bakr and told Abu Bakr to pay them. So they paid. They were paid. Then the Prophet ﷺ built it as a masjid. And how did he build it as a masjid? There are lessons in this too, and I'll explain this in a moment. What the fiqh Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yanqulu ma'ahmu al-labin fi bunyanih. And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam began carrying bricks with them in its building. وَيَقُولُ وَهُوَ يَنْقُلُ al-labin And he would say whilst carrying the bricks. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam actually took off his noble cloak and he began lifting bricks to build his own masjid along with the Sahaba. So much so that his noble chest became covered in dust. That was the messenger of Allah. And whilst they were working, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum was singing poetry. 
And some of those poems were, or couplets were, one of them was, the Prophet ﷺ himself, whilst carrying the bricks, he would be saying, هَذَا الْحِمَالُ لَا حِمَالُ he would say, this, this load, this load, not the load of Khaybar. This is far more virtuous, O oh our Lord, and far more pure, far purer. What does that mean? This was a poet, a couplet by Abdullah ibn Rawaha, radiyallahu an, one of the Poets of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as I mentioned in the hadith of Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu, and on other occasions. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had three poets laureates. Three official poets. Ka'b ibn Malik, Abdullah ibn Rawaha, and Hassan ibn Thabit radiyallahu anhum. Abdullah ibn Rawaha radiyallahu anhu was martyred in the Battle of Muta, and he was one of the commanders who was instructed by the Messenger of Allah to take up the command. So he was martyred in the Battle of Muta in the 8th year of Hijrah, uh, fighting against the Romans and their allies. So, the Abdullah ibn Rawaha, and he was a poet, and a brilliant poet, and a very humorous one as well. So, he has a very humorous story. So Abdullah ibn Rawaha radiyallahu he said this and the Sahaba radiyallahu anhu began repeating it. And the meaning is, هذا الحمال لا حمال خيبر أبر ربنا وأطهر Khaybar was an oasis just like Medina and Yathrib, as it was known before, approximately 90 miles to the north of Medina. And it was, a, it was an oasis. And Khaybar had a brilliant climate and it was very famous for its produce, its dates. Its dates and many of the fruits. It was a very fertile region. So it was famous for its crops and produce. And people would bring back loads and loads of goods and produce from Khaybar and whoever brought back was very profitable. In fact, Khaybar, in a way, served as a breadbasket. Or it was, it was an area for great cultivation and produce for a whole region. So the Prophet so their produce was famous, and the Khaybar, people of Khaybar were extremely wealthy. So the Prophet wasallam, along with the Sahaba, radiyallahu anhu, was singing, This load, O oh, our Lord, is far better, far more pure, and far more virtuous than the loads of trade and goods and produce from Khaybar. I.e. the weight of carrying bricks and being covered in dust while building the masjid of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, this weight, this load, is far better than any other load, no matter how profitable it may be, or how beautiful it may be in worldly terms. Then, Along with this, he would also pray or sing. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would call, Allahumma inna al-ajra ajru al-akhirah, farhamil ansara wal-muhajirah. Oh Allah, verily the reward is the reward of the akhirah. Therefore forgive and have mercy on the ansar and the muhajirah. So these words rhyme. But again, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did not 
recite, did not compose these words himself. He was saying it along with others. فَتَمَثَّلَ بِشِعْرِ رَجْلٍ مِّنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ لَمْ يُسَمَّذِي So the narrator says, the Prophet ﷺ adopted the poem or the couplet of a man amongst the Muslims who wasn't named for me. But we learn from other narrations that this could have been Abdullah ibn Rawaha radiyallahu anhu. قَالَ ibn Shihab, ibn Shihab says, وَلَمْ يَبْلُغْنَا فِي الْأَحَادِيثِ It has not reached us amongst the ahadith. أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ تَمَثَّلَ بِبَيْتِ شِعْرٍ تَامٍ مِّنْ غَيْرِ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ That the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he adopted a complete couplet other than this couplet. What Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri is saying, although he's speaking about what hasn't reached him, but there were other couplets which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had recited. What he's trying to say here, is, as we know, in the Qur'an, Allah says, وَمَا عَلَّمْنَاهُ الشِّعْرَ وَمَا يَنْبَغِي لَهُ We have not taught him poetry. As part of the miracle of the Messenger wasallam, Imam Sha'bi rahmatullahi alayhi says, that all of the children of Abdul Muttalib are poets. <coughs> so all of the sons and the grandsons of Abdul Muttalib, the whole clan, Every one of them is a poet, except for the Messenger of Allah. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Only he wasn't a poet. Allah defended him, protected him from poetry. Why? So that his proof of the Quran could be absolute. And it is not the word of a poet. Little do you believe. The, the Prophet ﷺ couldn't recite poetry. He could never compose it. Never. He never composed poetry. And not only that, and this is what Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri is trying to say, Rasul, the Arabs were poets. Poet, poems were their media. They had no other media. If you wanted to elevate someone, you eulogize them. If you wanted to base and humiliate someone, you satirize them. And everyone feared the tongue of a poet. And we learned about Ka'b ibn Malik radiyallahu That he caused or led the whole tribe of those to actually embrace Islam through the power of his tongue. And... So the tongue of a poet was very powerful. And that's why the poets were famous. And this is something they could never work out about the Messenger wasallam. He couldn't recite poetry. He couldn't compose poetry. So how did he produce the Qur'an? Which defeated all poets and silenced them. And in order to protect him, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and make his miracle complete and even more outstanding, that someone who never knew how to read or write was unlettered. And not only that, but even verbally, he couldn't compose poetry, nor could he recite poetry composed by others. He did sometimes like here. But on many occasions, he would actually recite couplets from other people and get them wrong. So he would be with Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. 
And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was a man of letters. And he would say something, and Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu would say, Ya Rasulullah, it's not like that, it's like this. So the wording would be correct, just the positioning of the words. Why Allah would protect him from reciting poetry. He couldn't normally, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha would ask him, what would be asked that, did the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ever quote? So the meaning of tamathil, when I say adopted, it actually means quote. That when, would the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam quote poetry? So Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha would say that of all kinds of speech, this was the most disliked to him. He wouldn't engage or indulge in poetry of any sort. And occasionally when he would repeat it, the Prophet ﷺ would actually say the words correctly. It wouldn't be wrong. But he would naturally say the words in a reverse, sorry, in an order which broke the rhythm. So it wouldn't be poetry. And Umar ibn Khattab and Abu Bakr would actually correct him. And there's that famous uh, story related by Imam Abu Bakr al-Bayhaqi, rahmatullahi alayhi. Very beautiful story. Part of it is in Bukhari in the sense that, well, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa prayed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for rain. So he prayed to Allah for rain. And the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum say, this is a part which is in Bukhari. Sahaba radiyallahu anhum say, there was nothing there. There was not a wisp of a cloud in the sky. And then the Prophet ﷺ, someone approached him and said, a messenger of Allah, pray for rain. Long story, he prayed for rain. He raised his hands. He was on the mimbar. He raised his hands. And the, and the Sahaba anhum say, when he raised his hands, there was not a wisp of a cloud in the sky. Then we saw rolling clouds from the distance gather. And no sooner had he raised his hands, then the clouds came and broke upon us. And it rained heavily. So much so, because this was how the masjid was built. The masjid was very simple. Three parts. The back part was left completely open. Three walls. And the front part of the masjid had... The back part of the masjid was open. The front part of the masjid had pillars. The pillars were tree trunks. And it had thatch, a thatched roof of... What? Palm fronds and palm branches. So it was a very simple dwelling. And because of that, when it rained, the rain fell through. And the Prophet ﷺ was standing on the mimbar. He had just prayed and the drops of rain were falling through the roof, the thatched roof, onto his noble face and beard whilst he was on the masjid. That was a miracle. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, this part isn't mentioned in Bukhari, but it's mentioned by Imam Abu Bakr al-Bayhaqi in his book. He says that what happened is, when this rain fell and his prayer was answered, he said, If Abu Talib was alive, his eyes would be cooled and soothed by this sight. Who will recite his poem for us? Now what had happened, Abu Talib in Mecca, when the rest of the Quraysh ganged up against them, and they said, if Abu Talib and the clan of Hashim do not submit Muhammad to us, then we will boycott them as well. This was approximately the seventh year of Hijrah. 
So Abu Talib said, we will not give up our son to you, meaning Muhammad ibn Abdullah, we will defend him. And then Abu Talib, who was a poet, like I said, all of the children of Abdul Muttalib were poets. He recited a very long poem of approximately 80 to 100 couplets. And in there he spoke about himself, his clan, about the injustice of the Quraysh. And in there he also spoke about the Prophet And one of the couplets was, وَأَبْيَضَ يُسْتَسْقَ الْغَمَامُ بِوَجْهِهِ ثِمَالُ الْيَتَامَ عِسْمَةٌ لِلْأَرَامِلِي That white, fair of complexion. The clouds are prayed to for rain, or rain is sought from the clouds through his noble face and countenance. Thimarul Yatama, the refuge of orphans, Wa'ismatun Lil Aramili, and the refuge of orphans and shelter for orphans, Wa'ismatun Lil Aramili, and protection for the needy women and widows. So, this is, now subhanAllah, Abu Talib, his own uncle, for his protection, recited a poem, and in that poem he recited words and couplets about the Prophet ﷺ. Even something about himself, he couldn't recall properly. So he said, if Abu Talib was alive now, and he saw the rain falling, his eyes would be cooled and soothed by the sight. Who will recite his poem for us? He couldn't recite it himself. So who stood up? Abu Talib, his own son, Abu Talib's son, Ali radiallahu he said, Ya Rasulullah, it seems as though you are referring to Abu Talib's words, وَأَبْيَضْ يَسْتَسْقَ الْغَمَامُ بِوَجْهِهِ ثِمَالُ الْيَتَامَ عِسْمَةٌ لِلْأَرَامِلِي Fair of complexion, through his noble countenance, rain is sought from the clouds, the shelter of orphans, and a protection for the widows. So, Prophet ﷺ, that's what he was referring to. So he was unable to quote poetry from others, even about himself. And when he would quote, he would get it wrong. It wouldn't mean it would be totally confusing, but the words would be shifted so that the rhythm would break, and as a result, it would no longer be considered a poem. So, why was this? Allah says, and we did not teach him poetry, and it is not befitting him. So this is why Allah protected him from poetry. This is why Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri says that, to his knowledge, at that time he says, it has not reached me that the Prophet ﷺ quoted entire couplets other than these, uh, and the two prayers. Sahaba radiallahu anhu whilst building the masjid were also reciting another couplet. But this was about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He wouldn't recite it himself, but they would recite it. لَإِنْ قَعَدْنَا وَالنَّبِيُّ يَعْمَلْ لَذَاكَ مِنَّ الْعَمَلُ الْمُضَلَّلِ That if we sit whilst the Messenger of Allah works, then surely this would be a deviant deed from us. Now, this takes me back to the final point which I wish to share with you, Allahu Akbar. We've reached the end of the hadith, but the point I wish to make about the masjid and the building of the work of Rasulullah 
So the, the building work of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that one of the greatest lessons is that we should not, we cannot, we should not, we must not rely on others for our deen and for our akhirah. We must pay our own way to ensure that our reward is complete and that our sincerity and motives remain pure. And so that we retain dignity in our religion. What I mean by that? Look at the example of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He would accept gifts and he would allow Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu to spend money on him personally. And Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu spent thousands and thousands. He gave his daughter to him. And before that and after that, on a personal level, Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam received so much money from Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu spent on him. And he didn't refuse. But right at the critical moment... When their lives were in danger, and he was about to embark on the journey of Hijrah, Abu Bakr revealed to him that he had been preparing two camels for that particular journey, and he said, O Messenger of Allah, choose one of them. At that critical juncture, on that occasion, full of danger, the Prophet said, only with a prize. He insisted on paying. Abu Bakr radiallahu knew that the Prophet sallallahu wouldn't accept otherwise, so he actually accepted payment. Subhanallah. He accepted payment for a camel at that most critical time when their lives were in danger. That would normally be the last thing on a person's mind. Why? And I explained then as well. The reason is so that the hijrah of the Prophet sallallahu could be complete. This was his hijrah. He wanted to pay for it. It said that Abu Bakr radiallahu had paid over 40,000 dirhams and spent it personally on Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam before the hijrah. What would a few hundred more matter? But the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam refused. And insisted that he pay for his own camel so that his hijrah would be complete. And speaking about the Ansar radiallahu anhu, we don't have time to go into their merits and virtues. But they helped the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And on that occasion when he gathered them, he even said, If it wasn't for the hijrah, I would be one of the Ansar. But I do not wish to be one of the Ansar. Why? I wish to remain a muhajir. Imagine how great hijrah was that the Prophet ﷺ, despite being the messenger of Allah, wanted to be considered a muhajir. If it wasn't for the hijrah, I would be a man from amongst the ansar. Why? He wanted his hijrah to be complete, pure and exclusive for himself. He did not want it to be contaminated in any way or reduced in any way. When it came to paying for the camels, he paid for them. And when he arrived in Medina, he told the Banu Najjar, come to an agreement with me for this land. They knew he wanted to build a masjid. 
They said, never, O Messenger of Allah, we will only come to an agreement with Allah. Meaning, we want our reward from Allah. We don't want to give you any money. So the Prophet ﷺ turned away from them, found out who the land belonged to. He summoned the two young lads, Suhail and Sah. And he asked them, will you sell me this land? They were intelligent. They said, why do you want it, O Messenger of Allah? He couldn't lie to them. So he said, I wish to build a masjid. They said, nahbuhu laka ya Rasulullah. We gift it to you. He refused to accept it. He ensured that the young orphans were paid for that land. He insisted on paying for the masjid. And then, what did he teach the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum once the masjid was paid for? Everyone just donate a bit of money. And there are laborers and workers available in the whole of the oasis of Yathrib. Pay them money and we will supervise the work and we'll have the masjid built. No. Prophet ﷺ instructed the Sahaba anhum, you build the masjid. And he built it himself. They were singing away, carrying bricks, praying for Allah's forgiveness, covered in dust. And the Prophet ﷺ was saying, This load, O our Lord, not the load of Khaybar, is far more virtuous and far purer. And he covered himself in dust. Ammar ibn Yasir radiallahu he, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they would load two bricks on him, two large bricks or stones. So he would be loaded with weight, and he would say to the Prophet the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa saw him, and the Prophet, he said to the Messenger of Allah, Messenger of Allah, what is it with these people? They've killed me. They give everyone else one stone and they give me two. So the Prophet ﷺ lovingly began brushing dust off him. So the Sahaba عنهم, and the Messenger of Allah, they built the masjid with their own hands. I end with this. The point I wish to make is that in this hadith of Hijrah, there were many lessons, but in this one lesson, we must learn to pay for our deen. And what do I mean by that? Subhanallah. We treat religion as a charity. We treat religious establishments as a charity. There are food banks in the UK right now. I mentioned in the tafsir last week that in the UK here, there are reports now as we speak, of more than 500,000 people, over half a million people, relying on dish-outs and handouts from food banks up and down the country. And some people have spoken of this experience, how they find it so embarrassing that when they go in order to get some food from food banks. We're not talking about a refugee camp in a third world developing country. We're talking about the UK here. That when they go to collect food, when they are reduced to that level, they find it so demeaning. They are unable to open doors to people. They are unable to show their faces to people. Even though people give to them, 
people give to them. People, that's why there are food banks. People give. People are willing to share. People are willing to give. But the very act of accepting charity in that manner, the very act of having to accept handouts and food from other people as charity, is demeaning. It's demoralizing. It's undignified. It lowers a person in their own eyes. On on one or two occasions, fine. But no self-dignified, noble person wants to live like that. And nor should they. This is what charity, this is what relying on other people's charity is. Now I ask you, have we ever thought about this in religious terms? If I was to say to you, that why don't you? How would you feel if you had to rely on food banks for your milk, bread and your canned soup and beans and food? For yourselves, for your loved ones, for your families, for your children. How dignified would that be? How would you feel if someone regularly came to your house and said, here, we're dropping off some food for you? Not as a gift, but as charity. Here, you need it. You and your children need it. We've we've brought you some canned food. How would you feel? Well, subhanAllah, if that's the way we feel about bread and beans and cans, canned food, why are we doing that in our deen? Why are we relying on other people's charity now with thee? Isn't it the same thing? For our salah, our ibadah, for our ilm and knowledge, for our akhirah, we don't wish to do anything ourselves. Let other people build masjids. Let other people contribute to the masjids. Let other people establish madaris, madrasas, and makatib. Let other people establish charities. Let other people teach us for free. Let other people impart knowledge to us for free. We are willing to accept their charity. We want our ilm of deen in cans. We want our knowledge of religion in handouts. Wallahi, this is not the spirit of religion. This is undignified. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught... And he demonstrated it. He paid for his camel even to his best friend and father-in-law. For religion. For his hijrah. He insisted on paying for his masjid. He insisted on working himself in building his masjid. There is a great lesson in that for us. And what am I trying to say? Wherever you see... If you benefit from any religious charity, then contribute and help. Let me ask you a question. How many times do we go to masjids up and down the country? We go in, we use the heating, we use the water, we form wudu, we use the facilities. And we go out without contributing anything.
We have religious projects. And we have to ask people to donate. And subhanAllah, can you imagine this? Someone is extending their hand to you, not for themselves, but for you. And we think they're asking for money again. SubhanAllah, they're not asking for themselves, they're asking for you. So make it a practice when you go to a masjid. Think that you have come to the house of Allah. How will the masjid run? And volunteer, I'm not just talking about money. Charity in Islam means sharing. Sharing not just your money. The Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, the Prophet sallallahu could have told them, let's hire some workers. Pay some laborers. No. Do it yourselves. Become involved. Charity is sharing in everything. The most valuable thing is time. Give your time. In, in many masajid, you will see masjids, religious establishments. You will see that people, that one person does everything. One person does everything. You find some dedicated individuals who are there for every single salah. It's because of them that the heating runs on time. The, the masjid remains clean. We should clean the masjid. How often do we walk into a masjid? We see something we say, oh, why don't they clean this? SubhanAllah. Neither do we want to do it ourselves, nor do we want to pay towards it or contribute towards it. Instead, we complain. An Abyssinian lady used to sweep the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. One day she wasn't there. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam inquired of her, where is she? So they said, Ya Rasulullah, she has passed away. She said, why didn't she inform me? They said, we didn't want to disturb you. It was at night. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam summoned his senior companions all with him and said, take me to her grave. He went and he stood over her grave along with his senior companions and he performed special salatul janazah for her. To honor her. Why? Because she would sweep the masjid. SubhanAllah. So let us volunteer and be part of the deen. Part of religion. Let us not be takers. We consider it undignified to be takers in dunya. Why should we be takers in deen? Why should we rely on charity and handouts in deen, in religion? I hope I've made the message clear. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. This brings us to the end of Hadith al-Hijrah. I apologize for the delay in time, but لَن تَنَارُ الْبِرَّ حِتَّى تُنْفِقُوا مِمَّا تُحِبُّونَ As Allah says in the Qur'an, you will never attain virtue, piety and righteousness until you, until you spend of that which you love. I'm not asking you for money, I'm just saying don't take me to task because we've gone a few minutes over time. Sacrifice of your time. This brings us to the end of the Hadith. The, I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to benefit from the lessons of the hadith of Hijrah, from the Hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This was a very important occasion. This marked the beginning of our calendar. 
And although the hijrah took place in Rabi'u al-Awwal, the calendar was started from two months before, from the beginning of Muharram, because that's the first month. So Muharram, Safar, and then Rabi'u al-Awwal. صلى الله وسلم على عبده ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد والله إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on double zero double four one two one double seven one. Three triple seven, or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions. All rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting, or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.